I bought a few things. Here's a hand dyed Toreg gown here. This is a kefir, like this is a kefir, and here is a red scarf I got for practically nothing. What are you, what got... are you doing with the camera? Oh, that's a long story. It's another one of the things I bought. Uh, what do you mean? Huh? Well, uh, you bought a camel? Well, yeah, well, no, I didn't actually buy them. They sold them to me, but. Huh? Uh, yeah. Come on, boy. Easy, boy. Easy, boy. Easy, boy. Easy, boy. Easy, boy. What the hell's the matter right with him? Is he Sorry. blind? Well, yeah, he is, but, but he's in perfect condition. Bit of an explanation there for why we named our awards for our Lane May Marathon. The blind camels. I, I wouldn't have thought that would have been one of the funnier bits in Ishtar. <laughs> yeah. The scenes with the blind camel, but Somehow. I kind of went for it. Mm-hmm. It kind of worked. We are wrapping up our marathon finally with a uh, look at the highlights for each of us. We're going to go over about five, six categories we have. We do this for each of our marathons and pick out those performances or moments that just stuck with us mm-hmm. and we thought were among the best. And we're going to get some help, as we did at the start of this marathon, from Peter Labuza. That's right. He was our guest Elaine May expert, helped set things up before we reviewed A New Leaf, May's first film. Her other three that we reviewed as part of this marathon, of course, were The Heartbreak Kid, Mikey and Nikki, and the aforementioned Ishtar. We do have six categories for our Blind Camel Awards Best Supporting Performance, Best Lead Performance, Best Duo, since all the films feature duos, the cringeworthiest moment, and the funniest moment, and they could be one and the same, Josh, certainly with Elaine May, and finally, Best Picture. Let's start off by hearing from Mr. Labuza, his pick for Best Supporting Performance. So for my supporting award, I'm going with Jeannie Berlin and the Heartbreak Kid. You're going to have to give me about 40 or 50 years. Why do you keep saying 40 or 50 years? We're on our honeymoon. I mean, we're not even out of Georgia yet. Look at Mr. Grouch. Mommy, mommy, help me. I married a grouch. Berlin's in a really tricky role where she just has to play the most annoying person in the universe, but I think she finds a way to give it a lot of pathos. And I think there's something really unique in that performance, and you see it in sort of the lobster dinner scene that I always think about, when she's just covered in tears and everything, and these moments that sort of just break through the caricatureness of her character and remind us once again that she's a human being and that Charles Grodin is really the one who's kind of crazy here in this scene. I think the fact that May only knew that Berlin could pull off this kind of performance, the kind of thing that would have just been so saccharine and so silly in another type of film. And honestly, the fact that when we finally leave her in the film, you do feel this loss in this moment that I think really complicates the entire film. And it's the performance that stays with me even after we arrive in Minnesota. So Berlin has to take my award here. So I'm with Peter here. Really? I went, yep. I went with Jeannie Berlin too. The daughter I mean, of Elaine May. Yeah. Which I didn't realize until you told me in our review. I really consider her though a co-lead here when you think about how maybe it's Even just though how, she's stuck in the hotel room for well, most of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully we return to her here and there. I think because the film does abandon her for its last act, you do have to really say she's supporting performance, mm-hmm. but otherwise you could think of her as a lead. Um, you know, this is just as, as Peter was talking about, it, it could have been a cast off part. The, this part of the clinging wife, but she's just so integral to the movie. I, I think I probably honestly cared about what happened to her more than anyone else in that Yeah, film. certainly more than Grodin. Well, right. I don't think you're <laughs> supposed to. Uh, and this, you know, it's not just because Berlin is funny, but she is so funny. I love 
mentioned this in the review, but the childlike excitement she brings to that moment where, where she says, I put cream on and she's, her face is just covered with it yeah. like he doesn't notice. But, you know, we also talked about how she was tender early on. She's even seductive in one moment. And then in the lobster dinner scene that Peter mentioned, I mean, she's just so convincingly devastating. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really a wide-ranging performance for for what's essentially a broad comedy. Yeah, I did consider Jeannie Berlin for sure. I also thought of Elaine May, the only film she appears in as Henrietta in A New Leaf, George Rose as Harold the Butler oh, he's so good. in A New Leaf, and also I felt like I had to give a little bit of a nod to Jack Weston, who only appears in A New Leaf and Ishtar, but in both films plays a wonderfully slimy variation on the same character in a new leaf he's the shady lawyer the corrupt lawyer and in ishtar he's the shady somewhat corrupt perhaps agent to warren Beatty and dustin hoffman i love his bits in both those films but i had to go with another performance from the heartbreak kid it's eddie albert and i knew when i saw the heartbreak you kid, called this yeah I, I knew that it was going to be him <laughs> he was going to win this award it was going to be very difficult for anyone to unseat him i just think albert is laugh out loud funny without ever once seeming to try to be funny and all these or conversations a word exactly all these conversations where he is stuck listening to Charles Grodin, just yammer on and really make no sense at all and just make him more and more incensed as he talks, Eddie Albert betrays nothing in how he's reacting to what he's saying. He represses it all. He holds steady until he finally just has to say it, Josh. I don't like a goddamn thing about you. (laughs) And it's so perfect. And he erupts. And then later, when they're having dinner at his home in Minnesota, after Grodin's Lenny has made the trek all the way up there to try to win Eddie Albert's daughter, he doesn't look up once during the whole sequence where Lenny is kind of trying to charm the mom and impress everyone by talking about how real everything is in Minnesota. He doesn't look up once because he's not buying any of it. And then he finally gets him alone in his office and says, I was very impressed. I have never heard such a crock of horseshit in my life. <laughs> and every time he delivers it, you just you just don't know. You think for a second, maybe he was impressed. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's turned a corner somehow on Lenny. No, He hasn't. But the fact that he has no tells at all and he just lets Leonard fall into his trap every time we then fall into the trap as well. And it's comedic genius. There's no deceit in the cauliflower. Where do you get ideas like that? They just. They just come into the New York head of yours. I was merely trying to impress the fact that it was a a pleasure through you. You don't think I see through you? You could wear two wool sweaters and a raccoon coat. I'd still see through you. I've never once tried to misrepresent myself or deceive uh, uh, anybody. Leonard, you think you're quite determined, don't you? You think once you get your mind set on something, that's it? Leonard, you don't know what determination is. I eat determination for breakfast. Eddie Albert, my blind camel winner for Best Supporting Performance. That brings us to Best Lead Performance. I wonder, I wonder if this will be three for three here. Let's start with Peter. 
for lead actor, I have to go with Peter Falk in Mikey and Nikki. Elaine May sort of inverse on a John Cassavetes film. I think as you guys really talked well in your conversation, Falk just has this intensity about him in the way that sort of he's really, you feel the weight in his shoulders the entire time. And I think that weight that really comes down, especially in those final moments in his own, back in his own home, you really get the sense of this full character that he's breathed out in the way that he's really created every little rhythm of this character and the intensity that he brings to it. I think it's the type of performance that's actually typical of all of Elaine May's performances in all our films, but really gets to the dark center. I think Falk just naturally captures that with this intensity that really brings us into what type of person he is. All right, give me a carton of cream from the dispenser. How many coffees? Well, no coffees, just fill up a carton of cream. Can't do that. I wouldn't know what to charge it. Cream is for the coffee only. It's not for sale. Charge me for 15 coffees and give me the cream. 15 coffees? That's right. Sorry, Adam, it's not. I'm going a different direction really? here. Yeah, I'm going with Walter Matthau in A New Leaf. Yeah. This is one of those performances that makes me ask, where has this actor been all my life? And this happens with someone who you think you know, right? You're vaguely familiar with them. I thought I had a fairly good sense of what Matthau was all about, probably drawn from unfairly or not Bad News Bears, The Odd Couple, and maybe Crumpy Old Men even. But then I see him in A New Leaf. And I realize how much I've underestimated him. Mm-hmm. He's Henry Graham here, the the once rich bachelor who's he's blithely spent all of his inheritance, yet he's going to continue to live on as if that wasn't the case, no matter what he has to do. He has such a goofy affability to this part. I love the goodbye tour he takes of all those posh places he's no longer <laughs> going to be able to visit. There's the French Bistro, the Polo Stable, his private club. And I also mentioned in our review that hilarious detail where he wistfully pets a priceless statue in his house. And then he does the same to Harold, his yeah. butler. So little things like that are just wonderful. And those conversations between Henry and Harold, played by George Rose, are some of my favorite in the marathon. It's, you know, they're about the importance of status and wealth to Henry and how he can desperately go about retaining both. They're wickedly funny, very biting. Yet again, because of Matthau's affability, you almost end up rooting for him in all yeah. his immoral scheming. Yeah. I think it's silly, Blanche. I'm not sure. Let's be going mad. By the way, who's Henrietta Lowell? Well, she's old Guy Lowell's daughter. Well, who's old Guy Lowell? Boss, he's dead now. Been dead ever since I can remember. Well, who was he when he was alive? Well, he was an industrialist, a composer, something like that. Well, did he die with his wealth intact, or did he lose everything in suicide? And that? I, I mean, I'm merely curious. Well, he died with his wealth intact. And, um... I heard he was enormously wealthy when he died, is that right? I thought you didn't know who he was. Well, I didn't at first, but the vividness of your description has restored him to my memory. Matthau is unbelievable. He was a very close second for me. I mean, he just gives, I think, a truly unique comedic performance, but I am with Peter, ultimately. Peter Falk is subtly devastating as Mikey and Mikey and Nikki. He's so conflicted. He has every reason to hate Nikki. We see that all play out on screen. He has every reason to have made the decision he's made to be complicit in Nikki's downfall. And the more the night drags on, he actually becomes a little bit more, not less convinced 
I think, that Nikki has it coming, but it still wears on him. And by the end of the film, May simply will not let him off the hook. If he's going to get his freedom, if that's what he really wants, to be extricated from Nikki, it's going to be incredibly, incredibly hard on him. He is going to have to earn it, and Falk earns it with this performance. I had a similar experience, actually, with Falk's performance that I did with Mathows. You know, just seeing him in a new light and appreciating him in a new way. It, mm-hmm. It's definitely a great one. So, as I mentioned, a duo featured prominently in all of these films. You've already heard some of the names. Mikey and Nikki. that's Falk and John Cassavetes. Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman and Ishtar. Charles Grodin and Jeannie Berlin or Sybil Shepard, I suppose, in The Heartbreak Kid and Walter Matthau and Elaine May as Henry and Henrietta in A New Leaf. Let's see which partnership Peter went with. There's so many great duos in Elaine May's films, and it was really hard to choose one, but I had to go with her first film, A New Leaf, and the pair of Henry and Henrietta, played by Walter Matthau and Elaine May. I think part of it is the fact that they aren't really compatible as actors, and that's the way that you get these unexpected rhythms that I do think come out of Elaine May's improvisatory background. I think when he proposes to her and she spills the wine, and then he spills more wine, you get the sense that these two actors are not in entirely in sync with each other and yet it's that out of syncness that really makes them way more exciting to watch in a way and so when they do sync say like in the tunic scene where it's just like this slow Rube Goldberg like machine of trying to figure out this logic puzzle you get the sense of Elaine May's work with performers and trying to find unexpected rhythms that really bring out the humor in her stories so in a place where all the rhythms are just exactly aligned and yet the actual actions are not working I think that's just typical of what makes Henry and Henrietta, who feel like such opposites yet are so uniquely perfect for each other, just one of my favorite Elaine May duos. 55 was a glorious year for Mouton Rochelle. Better than 53, I think. Don't you? May I ask you something? Certainly, Henrietta. Have you ever tasted Morgan David's extra heavy Malaga wine with soda and lime juice? Uh, not that I can recall. One of my students happened to introduce it to me on a field trip to the Canary Islands. It tastes a little like grape juice, and every year is good. Why don't you just drink grape juice? It's not as sweet. I had never drunk wine at all. Love that pick. I thought about going that direction myself, but... I'm actually going to go with Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty in Ishtar. I never would have believed (laughs) that I would have been making that pick, you know, given the movie's reputation and my fondness for the other pairings of the marathon, like Henry and Henrietta. But I could have gone on watching Chuck and Lyle's inept songwriting sessions for hours, I feel like. Yeah. And and that doesn't even get to the, you know, the performances, the onstage performances, which I feel we don't get enough of really in the movie. Just – They're so comically bad and inept, but the interplay between them and pulling that off is so delightful. So we talked about the slack-jawed faces throughout Ishtar in disbelief at Chuck and Lyle's act. I I just wanted to experience more of that, I guess. (laughs) I'm right there with you. I went with Beatty and Hoffman as well just because of the pure joy they bring each other. And I think there is something essential about May in all these relationships over the course of these four films. What is more fundamental? Like, why do we respond to these films the way we do? What's more fundamental than figuring out that you are not alone in the world, that there is someone else who sees the world just like you, has the same silly tastes, and is just as put upon and oppressed by the world as you? It doesn't have to be romantic. It's simply somebody else gets 
you. And they make this connection that is unbreakable. And I think that's what's tragic a little bit about the ending of Mikey and Nikki, for example, and the end even of the Heartbreak Kid. You've got Lenny humming close to you, right? The song that he Mm -hmm. sang in the car with Jeannie Berlin's Lila. And it's possible you have to at least consider that May is suggesting maybe she really was the only one that was for him, whether he's conscious of it or not in that moment. Right. Maybe she was the only one who truly got him and he let it go. Mikey and Nikki, they only had each other. They were like brothers. They know exactly how to bring out the best in each other and the worst in each other. And they ultimately let that ruin them. But what we see in Beatty and Hoffman is really the best of that type of relationship. And for me, it's that first meeting scene where it's kind of a flashback where we see how they first met. Hoffman's character is playing at a bar. Beatty's character is there with his wife, and they're just having dinner. And Hoffman's talking to his girlfriend, Carol Kane, and says, Oh, my God, this guy's a songwriter, and he likes my song. He wants to buy me a drink. And they go over, and they make that connection. And then we see the montage where it's interspersed with other moments from their relationship. But they stay in that piano bar all night, pissing off the staff. They're women, but they're just riding the high of finding each other and inspiring each other. And of course, the real beauty is their artistic collaboration truly is objectively horrible. And I think that only heightens their connection and their friendship because you know that they're doomed to really only ever be appreciated by each other. other. Nobody will ever appreciate them the way the other person does. And that is why they are my key Elaine May duo. So we always have in these marathons our favorite moment from the marathon moment or scene. And with May, we realized that you could kind of break these up into two different types of moments, just the pure funniest moment, but also the cringe worthiest moment where, as I did during almost all of the heartbreak kid, I had to watch it with my eyes closed because so much of it made me cringe. This was a late addition to our list of awards. So we don't have Peter's pick for cringe worthiest, Josh, but I'm curious what yours is. It does come from the heartbreak kid and it's actually already been mentioned. It's the laying my cards on the table scene where Lenny is out with Kelly Sybil Shepard for dinner with her parents. And he's going to ask for her father's approval on Mm -hmm. their ridiculous relationship. So this is the hilariously indignant Eddie Albert again. Those are my cards. And uh, Mr. Corcoran, there's there's not a joker in the bunch. Now having uh, spoken my piece, I would like like to know uh, in all candor how you feel about what I've said and uh, to ask if I have your approval. Not if they tied me to a horse and pulled me 40 miles by my tongue. You know, Lenny spends, I would estimate, maybe 85% of this movie flailing terribly. But I don't think he ever does more spectacularly or probably cluelessly, really, than he does here. We talked about how he doesn't even seem to notice that even Kelly isn't on his side in this scene. She's just letting him flail and enjoying watching him make a fool of himself. And, you know, even if we are squirming or watching as you did between your fingers, I think we're sort of enjoying it, too. So very hard for me not to pick that scene or the pecan pie dinner breakup scene from the Heartbreak Kid as well with Jeannie Berlin. But the one I had to go with, Josh, was a more serious cringe, and it came from Mikey and Nikki, their visit to Nellie's. We talked about mm. this during our discussion. Carol Grace is the actress, and 
as I mentioned during our review, this was a cringe that was less about awkward behavior and more about just actual repugnant behavior. This is Nikki's girl, and he basically promises Mikey that she'll have sex with both of them if they go see her. And you get that first cringe of Nikki persuading her to get down on the floor with him. Everything about that encounter is so sleazy Mm -hmm. and awful that you're feeling gross just watching it. Then you have the second cringe of Mikey being just outside the room in the kitchen, basically, in ear and eye shot the whole time. And this is where May's framing is key because we're constantly aware that he is right there taking all of this in. And then the final cringe dagger, after Nikki has had his fun, Mikey goes in and tries his luck. And it's clear that Nellie has no intentions of having sex with him. So there's the embarrassment of that and then the anger that follows that makes you cringe even more. It's not just really about discomfort. I mean, you really are disgusted watching these two men in this scene. And little side note, Carol Grace, the actress who plays Nellie, guess who she was married to in real life, Josh? One of those guys? One Walter Matthau. Oh, wow. (laughs) Actually, until their dying day. They were married, as I understand it. So I love her performance, and I love that scene, even though it makes me feel gross to watch it. That's my cringeworthiest moment. Let's get to then the funniest moment, and we'll go back to Peter. Okay, so it's really hard to choose a single moment from an Elaine May film because there's just so many good moments. But the one I have to go through is the ledge in Ishtar. This is a moment early in the film where Dustin Hoffman's character is contemplating suicide and is out on a ledge, and his family's there, the police are there, his rabbi shows up, and then Warren Beatty shows up. And Warren Beatty just gives my favorite line in any Elaine May film, which is like the most heartwarming line when he says, you know, not everyone's got someone who will go out on a ledge for them. And I think that's the moment where you get the sort of both the darkness in Elaine May's work, these really sociopathic suicidal characters, and yet there's sort of a heartwarming when they come together together and somehow find this love in this way. And I know that I love Ishtar more than most people. I see it as basically a proto Will Ferrell, John C. Riley comedy in a way. And I think the fact that you have BD and Hoffman inverting their former type of roles in this makes it even funnier. I think this moment really defines May though, because it's about this overly extravagant situation that really just has these characters at its center. And it's centered on that one absolute line that just like breaks my heart every time at the same time I'm hysterically laughing and that's really what I've loved about Elaine May throughout her career. Another good pick I know we highlighted that scene too in our review of Ishtar. I'm going to go back to A New Leaf though and it's the moment where Elaine May's Henrietta on their honeymoon is trapped in her nightgown. There's a ton of... No, that's a good one. There's a ton of hilarious dialogue, and Mm. that was where I instinctively wanted to go in these films, in May's films, but I like this bit of physical comedy that she throws in here, and I think, looking back, it's maybe the moment when I knew I was going to be all in on May, that this is... She's doing something daring and a little different that was going to be a lot of fun to watch. They are on their honeymoon here, and she comes out in this supposedly seductive nightgown, but she she has it on all wrong. And then the two of them go through this extended bit of farce trying to get her out of it. I just love the simplicity of it. I like the improvisational element. It's one of the many bits in her films that has that air of unpredictability that May and Mike Nichols had in their sketches, which we were able to watch a little bit of. But I also think, you know, I'm just a sucker for prolonged comedy gags like this, where the filmmakers, they sustain the joke for so long that pretty soon 
the time span itself becomes part of the humor. Yeah, you know, and for you just sure. wonder like how, how long are they really going to push this? There's actually a wonderful bit in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the new Netflix movie where Pee-wee starts blowing up a balloon to show someone a trick and they just sit there while he blows up the whole thing and then he lets the air out slowly and they sit there in a single take until it's completely done. This moment works in the same way and I loved it. So I got to be honest, this is the only one where I couldn't really make a decision. I knew I was just going to go with my gut here in the moment. My options were the meeting between Beatty and Hoffman. I already mentioned the he liked my song sequence. Going back to the beginning of that film, the dangerous business How it opens is song, the way that whole movie opens. In The Heartbreak Kid, when he is lying to Jeannie Berlin about where he's going at night, and the way he just keeps stacking lies upon lies, like his the army details buddy, of right? his army buddy, yes. who he gives him the name, and the way she says, well, what's his name? And his back is turned to her at the time, and he turns and just... Just with a beat of indecision, but not much, he turns around. His name's Wilmer McCready. <laughs> Just where would he get that name from? And the fact that he keeps piling on. He got a citation for saving him in the war. It's just really, really great stuff. He's a captain now of a charter fishing boat with three kids. That cracks me up. And A New Leaf, the sequence that Peter alluded to where Henry asks Henrietta to marry him. And one of the best May lines from any of these films where he's kneeling on the broken glass because she's broken the glass and says something like, are you okay? And he says, no, kneeling on broken glass is my favorite pastime. It keeps me from slouching, (laughs) which only Mathau can really sell the brilliance of that. But I guess I'm going with Josh. The scene that really was the first scene, almost chronologically, that we saw in this marathon where I knew that I was going to be on board with Elaine May and the humor. Because the very opening of A New Leaf, the whole extended bit with his car, mm-hmm. where it's like it's a patient, is kind of funny, but also pretty weird and, and didn't really sell me on where we were going. But then when he has to go meet with his banker, mm-hmm. and I did quote at least one of these lines during our review, it's the scene with his banker where the banker has to lay out for him how he really has no money. And just Matthau's obstinance, his ignorance, his refusal to accept what the man is saying and the way that frustrates the banker. And of course, that great line where he says, I paid $550 out of my own pocket, a small price to pay to absolve me of any guilt in your downfall. And Matthau says perfectly, I don't suppose you'd care to give me an additional $6,000 and insure yourself against guilt permanently. And his response (laughs) You're perfect. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> he is. I mean, he is perfect. You could not make that character up. And somehow Elaine May did. And so that's what I knew I was going to be completely on board with this movie and with this May Marathon. So that's going to be my funniest moment, the financial downfall. That brings us finally to Best Picture. Let's hear what Peter goes with for his blind camel. Okay, for my best picture, I have to go with Elaine May's Mikey and Nikki. Her 1976 improvisatory long day journey into the night with Peter Falk and John Cassavetes. I think this is the film when you go back and watch A New Leaf and go back and watch Heartbreak Kid and Ishtar, you start to see elements of Mikey and Nikki in all our films. It really feels to me like the Ur text in a lot of ways, even though it's so different. When the darkness becomes the text in a lot of ways, I think you see where the rhythms of humor really come out for Elaine May and working with her performers and these things that are so unexpected that make you so terrified for these people and yet at the same time 
I find it really, really, really funny. I think this is where you see someone like Alex Ross Perry's work coming out of and these really unexpected ways to put performers together in conversation that really work at the same time. They're totally opposite. And the rhythms are just coming from the left field at every moment. And there's just so much unexpected camera work. There's so much unexpected, beautiful cinematography in a lot of ways. And I think it's just the core of Elaine May and what she's always said about the male psyche, the way that this film really puts these two men against each other, constantly trying to figure out who's the alpha in this situation, who's the beta, testing each other in the most vicious ways possible. And I think there's something really funny about that in the same time the film is ultimately tragic and leaves in such a sour yet beautiful note. And it's just my favorite film of Elaine May, though all of them are so fantastic. You don't even say hello to me. I walk into that restaurant and you're sitting there with Dave Resnick and Sid Fine and I gotta say hello to you three times because I'm too embarrassed to walk away without an answer. And when I walk away, I hear you say, Jesus Christ, call that guy back. I forgot to give him the order. That was a joke. That joke was for Resnick. For you. Not for Resnick. That's why I said it loud enough for you to hear it. That was, that was a joke for you. My best picture comes from the very beginning. I'm going with A New Leaf. And we talked, you know, when it came to Ishtar, we talked about it getting retroactive political points for being this spoof of American interventionism well before something like the Iraq War. Well, I want to give A New Leaf retroactive social commentary points. I really think that Matthau's unflappable, single-minded Henry Graham, you know, this guy who's not going to let reality stand in the way of his pursuit of wealth, he stands in for the national mood so well leading up to the financial meltdown of 2008. Go back to that line we discussed with Henry's butler, Harold, who tells him early on, in a country where every man is what he has, he who has very little is nobody nobody very very much. much. And that is the guiding ethos, right, for Henry. And I do think that forging our identity through our possessions, even if we can't afford them, that was part of the dynamic of the crash. And Henry Graham, now you can see him as this satirical personification of of that attitude, I think. So for me, A New Leaf, I've talked about the ways I've found it so very funny, but really it's it's this smart and clever social satire too. So it's going to be my favorite May experience. Yeah, my gut instinct here was actually to go the same way that Peter went. I was thinking Mikey and Nikki, but I did give A New Leaf the highest rating of any of the movies that we rated on the website. And so that made me really consider why that was. And I guess one of the questions that I posed to myself, and I'm curious if your answer would still be the same, Josh, is... In picking a best picture, is your winner the May film that you would tell somebody to watch if they could only watch one Elaine May film? Hmm. And for me, it would not be Mikey and Nikki. And that's perhaps easy to say because it's the most unlike all the other films. It does stand out in its tone. But I think A New Leaf is the film. That's the movie I'd say if you could only watch one Elaine May film, you see this movie. It's just so singularly May, including the fact that As I said earlier, it's the only one that she actually appears in. But in terms of the tone, the humor, the absurdity of it, and the poignancy of it, and you touched on this with that great bit about how there is no such thing as genteel poverty here in America, but there's also this whole theme about immortality, right? They talk about, in terms of her trying to discover this type of leaf, that it's something that being the one who discovers it, gives you something that no one can ever take away from you. It's named after you. And that's what they do come to connect with each other on. And I think that that line, that notion of a kind of immortality actually sums up 
a lot of the characters and the divide we see, a dichotomy we see in May's work, I think you can split up these characters in all of her films between dreamers and realists, or realists who you could even say are not just realists, they're downright disillusioned. And so you have someone like Henrietta, who's clearly a dreamer. You have Henry, who I think by the end of the film, actually becomes a bit of a dreamer himself. That's his transformation. Lenny, in The Heartbreak Kid, I would say is a dreamer. That's his problem, right? Is that he's constantly in search of the next thing that's going to be the spiritual answer to everything he's looking for, all of his happiness. And by the end of the film, I think he's actually transformed into one of the disillusioned. Chuck and Lyle, clearly dreamers. Yeah, and that never falters throughout the whole film. Of course, on the other side, the realists like Mikey, like Nikki, though maybe there's still a little bit of odd dreamer in him. But that whole notion of something larger, of seeking something outside yourself, whether it is something you find in another person or it's something you find in your work, whatever it is that rewards you. She loves to have that juxtaposition of those types of characters and that battle, that conflict. Yeah, that's a good question. Which one would you recommend people start with? I don't use that as maybe, you know, my guiding reason for choice for best picture. For me, it was just the one that I had the best time with. And Mm -hmm. that was by far a new leaf. But I do like that it is a broad comedy. And I think that represents may the best while still having all these other layers underneath that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, I would recommend a start with a new leaf too. Well, our thanks to Peter Labuza, our thanks to all of you who followed along with this marathon, or even if you didn't, if you just followed along listening to us gush about most of these films, that's okay with us as well. We are, as we look ahead to future marathons, after having an entire year where we didn't do one, we are hoping to incorporate the marathons more frequently into our shows. And one of the things we've talked about, Josh, is making sure our listeners had a little bit more of a personal investment. And we're going to start giving you some options. And you can vote over at filmspotting.net. And actually, we're going to go with whatever your choice is. You guys get to decide from three options what the next marathon will be. And we came up with a little bit of a structure as well. We've always kind of just flown with whatever made sense to us at the time. We have a bit of a list over at our marathons page at filmspotting.net, but we weren't beholden to it. And what we'd like to do is kind of rotate regularly between a contemporary marathon, a classic Hollywood marathon, and an international marathon, a foreign language marathon, recognizing, and you'll certainly hear this as we go through some of the choices, that there's a huge potential for crossover in these marathons. The contemporary marathon could be made up entirely of international films. So some of the future marathons we have coming, Chantal Ackerman, Claire Denis, Agnes Varda. You're going to get to pick between those three French slash Belgian filmmakers, the classic Hollywood marathon, Nicholas Ray, William Wyler, Ida Lupino, Vincent Minnelli in there. So three of those four, we haven't picked the exact three yet, but we're going to offer those to you. The next marathon, we thought it was time after Sachigit Ray, and after Elaine May, to go back to a marathon that really functions as a bit of a survey for a country's cinema that we need to become more familiar with. Yeah, we haven't really done something like this since contemporary Korean cinema, right? Was That's that our true, last the one? Korean O'Tours. Yeah, and Korean O'Tours, that, that's what it was. Which was way before that, the contemporary Iranian cinema Which marathon. had some films going back a little bit. So that is true. So this will be good. I, I feel like there's so much going on currently that we're not able to catch up with that. This is a good opportunity to do some of that. Absolutely. And we went through a few different options here, but taking some guidance from the members of our Film Spotting Advisory Board and from Sean Gilman in particular, who you'll remember from our Wuxia show, was our expert there. We've decided to give you two options that both involve Chinese language cinema 
On one side, there's The Art House. This is filmmakers like Ho Shao Shen, who of course gave us last year's The Assassin, Jia Zhanka, who gave us 2013's A Touch of Sin and his latest film, Mountains Made Apart, and Sai Ming Liang, who gave us Stray Dogs in 2013 and Goodbye Dragon Inn. In the popular category for Chinese language films, we're going to offer Johnny To, 2013's Drug War. I believe we talked about to we some did. degree on the show. Yeah, I'm a fan of that film. Last year, he made the musical Office. The other option would be Stephen Chow of Kung Fu Hustle fame. His latest film from this year actually is The Mermaid. And then Choi Hark. He made 2014's The Taking of Tiger Mountain. And in 1991, Once Upon a Time in China, that was with Jet Li. Yeah, so these marathons, again, probably going to consider at least a couple films from all three of these filmmakers. If Chinese language cinema, though, isn't your thing, or you don't think it's your thing, we're also offering you a Scandinavian cinema marathon. We could start with someone like Sweden's Roy Anderson. Last year's A Pigeon Sat on a Bench Reflecting on Existence, 2007's You the Living, which was Alison Wilmore's pick for her favorite film of the film spotting era at our 500 live show. There's Denmark's Suzanne Beer, who gave us the original Brothers and After the Wedding, and the Finn, Aki Karasmaki, who gave us La Havre and 2002's The Man Without a Pass. So some great stuff there. And we're not necessarily restricted to those filmmakers. I think for sure Karasmaki and Roy Anderson will be part of it. We're still going to decide the exact What about layout. Norway? I mean, being part Norwegian, I'm a little insulted. Okay, well... If you want to do the research, Josh, I'm sure we can find. No, you know what? That's fine. <laughs> You're good? <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> you don't want to dive into that too much at this point? Well, we'll see how much diving in we're going to do because you guys get to decide. You can vote now at filmspotting.net right there on the main page. Which of those three marathons, Chinese language art house, Chinese language popular, or the Scandinavian cinema marathon appeals to you most? This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Goodbye.